For the third week now, we're kicking around in the rubble. This is symbolic rubble, for those of you who haven't been here the last two Sundays. And just to sort of orient ourselves in this sequence of events, let me remind you briefly where we've been. Two Sundays ago, we spent time amidst the rubble of our lives, taking time to mourn what has been lost. And, it, and it's important uh, in lamenting and mourning to specifically identify what's been lost so that we can grieve it and so that we can begin to uh, appropriate the grace of God for our healing. It, it's important to take time to do that exercise. And then last Sunday, uh, when we gathered together, we talked about um, Israel's inability to finish the task uh, that they were given and um, sort of posed the question to us, what do we have to do in order to stay in step with God and keep moving, moving forward? And, and I think, again, I would observe that it's really a great thing for us to um, know that even in broken times like this, even in times of COVID, in times when our routines have been completely disrupted, our normal patterns have been completely disrupted, that in the scripture, we find stories and narratives that help us negotiate through times like that. It helps us understand that we're not the only folks who have ever been displaced or whose routines have been crushed or who have been broken in the ways that we have in recent days. And so these stories of ancient Israel and how they worked through these things for better or worse are instructional for us. Um, this morning I'd like to read uh, Isaiah 60, just a portion of it. And and spend a little more time in this section of Isaiah. I understand this section of Isaiah to historically be the time when the exiles are returning and they're trying to rebuild their city and their nation that was decimated by the wars of a few generations before. This is Isaiah 60, verse one. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. These, these central chapters of Isaiah in, in this section from 56 to 66, um, they're a rich resource um, for the prophet's work and for the word of the Lord to his people. And predominantly what's happening here is God is giving to Israel the impetus to make huge changes. They're living in exile and God makes huge, magnificent promises to the nation in part to get them out of exile. Because let's face it, after several generations of living in a different city and putting down roots and all that sort of stuff, like the rest of us, they sort of like a predictable lifestyle. And what they're being called to, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild a broken society is a daunting task. And a, probably a few more of them would just rather sit there and watch Netflix than take up the task of uprooting and moving into a place where the future is uncertain. And so these promises of God at the beginning of this section are magnificent. And something you'll notice is most of them come without any condition or if clause. They're just 
promises to say, if you'll honor me by coming back, I'll do an amazing work among you. And it's listed in several ways. Uh, planting for the Lord's glory, oaks of righteousness. You've heard the phrases the last several weeks of what God's promises are for the people. If they'll just take the initiative, come back and trust God. There aren't any if clauses, but, but then gaps appear. They get back, they, they start to rebuild the foundation of the temple and they're distracted by the difficulties of the job and by hecklers and detractors that are around them and, and loss of financial security. All those things distract them and they only get the foundation built and then the, the work ends. And then something like 20 years goes by and they finally, once Darius, once an outsider gives them provisions, permissions and provisions to come back, they're actually finally able to finish the temple and consecrate it. And you think, great, the life of, the, of the, the city is restored, but the walls don't get rebuilt. The security of the city is not reestablished until the walls are rebuilt. And we're going to have to wait almost another 50 to 60 to 70 years until the walls actually get rebuilt. And I'm wondering, why is this? And I think a big piece of it is that during this time, we don't really have any evidence that the spiritual life of Israel has changed. Other than the fact that they've had enough faith to come back, partly because foreign kings underwrote the bill of it. Other than that, there's not much change in the life of Israel. And so things languish. And you get, you get a sense that... Uh, the nature of the prophecies begin to change as you get towards the end of Isaiah. And now there are sort of if clauses, two ways things might go that weren't there originally. You know, you, 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 you heard last week that the people started grumbling and God's saying like, all day long I'm holding out my arms to, to, to respond to you, to embrace you. And I, I, I'm reaching out to a people who are not calling for me. Uh, I'm, I'm not hidden, but doesn't matter because no one's seeking me. And, and in, the in, the, in the lack of responsiveness of Israel, the future becomes dependent because God just can't afford to allow them to go back to what was normal before the destruction happened. He can't permit that because back in that day, Israel was not fulfilling its promise or its mission in the world. Remember the mission of Israel, all the way back to Genesis 12, 15, and 17, to Abraham, through you I will bless all nations of the world. And they were blessing nobody. And so these promises that were just all for prosperity become conditional because it's important that Israel carry out the mission for which God designed them. We're not going to see real renewal in Israel until some 50, 60, 70 years later to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you read through those books, if you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, you get the, uh, the other part of the history, which is there are crises in the spiritual life of Israel that are made plain. And, and I, I believe this is this is just my interpretation, but I think in chapter five of Nehemiah, we get real insight into a turning point in the life of Israel. 
What's been happening, what's been delaying the building process is the insecurity, the financial instability of the area, and and candidly, a famine that strikes during this period of time. And what's happened in the life of Israel is this. Wealthy folks, the scriptures say, nobles, officials, and priests, okay, take advantage of the situation of the famine, and they start to transact business with those who are in need. So they will loan money to the poor to buy food, but charge interest for it. Now, if you know anything about the history of Israel, you know that interest was forbidden in the Jewish community. Can't do that to your, you can't treat your neighbor in that unjust way. And, and they would, once the money ran out, be willing to lend you on your property. And then they would seize your ancestral property. And once the property was sold, they would take your children into indentured servitude. And this is what was happening in Israel. So the nobles, the officials, the priests are becoming more wealthy and more powerful, while regular folks are sinking further and further into debt and into insecurity and into despair. And this is the reality of Israel during these days. And Nehemiah calls all the officials and all the nobles and the priests together and says, this is not right. This is not who we are. We are the people of God. We are people of the book. This is not how we live. And he does this dramatic thing in front of them. He takes his robe. He shakes it out. He gets all the dust woofed away from it so it's clean in front of them and says, This is what I prophesy God will do to everyone here who does not give back the interest they've collected, return the people's lands, and free the servants. And if you don't do that, may you be divested of all your property and all your wealth, just like my cloak has been divested of its dust. It's a strong message. But the amazing thing is, is the nobles, the officials, and the priests hear the word of the Lord and take the step of obedience and do it. And I think that's the turning point. I think that's when things change. The scriptures say in that passage that after that happened, after this renewal, in 52 days, the wall was done. Can you imagine that? It's taken them decades, decades to get to the place where they can even approach this wall, and in 52 days, it's done. And when the wall is done, then Ezra brings out the law, reads the law of the people, and there's a national day of mourning as the folks realize we have been so far from what God has called us to do. And true revival and repentance break out in Israel because they're paying attention and they're taking these steps of obedience to be the people God calls them to be. And I wonder for us what those small steps of obedience might be and I wonder how far out of whack we are because Nehemiah and Ezra's prophetic messages to the people of God in those days weren't just critical of who they were on that day they were critical of what was normal before the nation fell. And if all Israel was attempting to do was to get back to the way things were, they would not be participating in the mission of God. And I think the same is true for us. If all we're concerned about is getting back to what was normal before, 
it's fair for us to ask, how in tune were we with the mission of God before our routines collapsed? And, and what must we do to make sure that when we emerge from the ruins of this particular time in our life, that we are returning to God's preferred future for us rather than some image of the normal life we had before. Because I'm, I'm relatively confident that, that COVID has made me more selfish, more self-aware, more self-concerned. I'm worried about how many times a day I wash my hands. I, and those things, I mean, we want you to wash your hands. We want the mask to be worn. That's, those are all important things, but there's a general tendency in that for us to become more selfish. And as we emerge from COVID, some things we want to take with us and some things we don't. And we don't want to become more self-absorbed because of the time we spent in these days. And so it's fair to ask, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to judge, but I'm saying we've got to ask ourselves what, what goes with us forward, what should not come out of COVID with us. And, and what about even the normal times from before shouldn't move forward with us? And if we're really candid, if we're really candid about critiquing who we were before COVID struck us, we've got to invite the Holy Spirit to say, Lord, what was it about those times? What were they like? And how are we doing at fulfilling the mission of God? And some things occur to me that um, I've been wrestling with for some weeks now. One of the things is, one of the observations I believe the Spirit has opened my eyes to is the fact that we did not do a very good job at corporate prayer before COVID times. I'm not doubting for a second that many of us had a personal prayer life that was private, but there's a difference between private prayer in our homes and corporate prayer together because it is in our corporate prayer that together we discover the will of God for us. And how will we know as a, as a congregation how to move forward, how to make a difference in our world unless we pray together? And I, I think it's critically important that we reclaim the discipline of corporate prayer in the days that are ahead. Another piece that is concerning to me is, is our patterns of worship attendance. In the last three, four years, we've seen our worship attendance decline. And we've heard some of the narratives from folks who said, well, you know, I, I attended there for two or three years, but I never really made any friends. I don't really sure anyone really cared about me. I mean, on the surface, your church was always the most welcoming and friendly church, but it never seemed for at least my family to sink into relationships beyond just Sundays. And, and those folks have sort of disappeared from us. For some of us, worship attendance has declined because of conflicts on our schedule. And we have competing things that rival our attendance. And, and we've not been quite sure what's most important. Um, if those things are true of us, it's my deep sense that we have completely, under, completely misunderstood what worship is. 
I mean, worship is not about getting my needs met. It is not designed to make you or me happy. It is not designed to entertain you. What it is, it's a weekly attempt to build a bridge between us and God. And as important as that is, it is equally an antidote to our self-absorbed, self-approved, self-satisfied orientation. It's an antidote to selfishness. And I don't know about you, but just living in this world and, and living under the barrage of advertisers who are trying to make my every whim the center of their universe, there are so many enemies trying to make me more selfish day after day that I need a weekly wake-up call that says, Whitney, you are not the center of the universe. You are not God. The world does not resolve around, revolve around you. There is a God in heaven, and he deserves your complete allegiance and service. And I need that every single stinking week. Not just a couple times. I mean, I need that continually. I don't know about you. You may have impervious armor against the onslaught of the culture. I don't know. I don't. And I need every week to hear that. I need, I need the reminder that I have been knitted into the body of Christ by the presence of the Holy Spirit and that I'm not in this thing alone, but I am the body of Christ actually, reconstituted by the Holy Spirit. And that because of that, I have obligations to others and, and that together we have a, a common mission. And we're supposed to be carrying out that mission together. Not like individuals running after different things. There's an aspect of a togetherness in this that's really important. And that's why we gather weekly to express gratitude to the one who sends us, to the one who enables us. We gather weekly so we can be shaped into the servants the world needs us to be. All these are part of this, of this worship thing that we do every week. Each week, worship reminds us of our identity in Christ of our mission in Christ, and the fact that we are team members, that we are team members, that we have responsibilities to one another and others have responsibilities to us. Another huge piece of worship is avoiding both isolation and error. You know how isolation gets us, right? You know, if you watch those, and I can't really recommend this, but if you watch those YouTube videos of predators hunting prey like out on the, in the, African plains, you'll see that the predators try to isolate one small weakened animal from the rest of the pack because there's safety in the herd, but when they get folks, get one alone, they can easily take that down. And, and I think Satan picks off weak Christians in the same way. Gets them isolated, gets them thinking about other things, and, and when they're alone, they're easy prey for an adversary. And so we as Christians need to stay attached to the body, but the body also has to look out for those who are isolated and pull them back and bring them back so they don't become weak, so they don't become stragglers, so they don't get left behind. You know, when we're isolated, we can convince ourselves that anybody is true. Anything is true. You know, they don't care about me. Well, we're trying to get in touch with you. Well, you don't really care. But if you cared about me, you would do this or you would do. And we begin to build up this wall of expectations that no one can fulfill. 
The reality is it's our job to stay connected. And it's our job to connect so that we stay together and remember who we are in Christ. Optional worship, the very concept, is a delusion. And we haven't been doing the best at that in normal times. And when we come out of these COVID days, we're gonna have to do better than that if we're gonna fulfill the prayer of Jesus, which is abide in me, stay connected to the vine, stay connected in Christ. That's a primary way that we do that. We've learned in these days how important our social relationships are by the fact that we haven't been able to have very many of them. And so we've been starved for fellowship. But I'm wondering how well we did at that before COVID struck. Did we really value the opportunities we had for fellowship before? And did we understand our fellowship in the terms that Jesus articulates in his rules for banqueting. Did you know Jesus, you know, long before, you know, Dear Abby had a column that G Jesus gave us some specific hospitality instructions? And, and they're these. When you throw a banquet, don't just invite the people who will reciprocate. Because if you only love the people who are your friends, you're doing the same thing all the pagans do. Everybody takes care of their friends. Everybody invites people who will reciprocate. But when you throw a banquet, invite the poor and the marginalized and those who need to be at your banquet as opposed to the people who you just naturally want to be at your banquet, then your father would seize in secret will reward you. Right? What, what will our circles of fellowship look like when we come out of this? Will it just be fun that I get to have my buddies over? Or are we gonna go all the way in obedience to the place where we bring in those who need to be with us as opposed to just the folks that we want to have around. How optional is our care of others? I, I think every family in the church ought to have at least one other individual or family who they, they care for. I mean, our city is filled with broken folks who are in desperate need of assistance. And no one family of us can take care of everybody. But if each of our families were in touch enough with the needs around us, that we would make this individual or that family or that situation a special focus of prayer and love and compassion, we can make a significant difference in our community and in the world. That's part of how we are light, the light of Christ in the world. And I think, especially if you're raising kids in your home, your children desperately need to see the model of how as a family you care for others. You will teach so much more about God and your responsibility to him and the mission of Christ by doing that probably then three months of Sunday school. And I'm not disparaging Sunday school. It's the actions that we embrace as families that are critical. And I'm wondering, beyond, beyond corporate prayer, beyond worship, beyond our expression of compassion, how are we doing at the practice of our spiritual disciplines? 
Now, it may just be that COVID has given us significantly more time for Bible reading and prayer than we had back in normal times. I've heard that story from several who've said, I've gotten more time from that. But then the question is, once COVID times are gone, are we just going to go back to the paucity of time we had before? Or are we going to maintain those patterns as we move forward? That's always the question on the table, isn't it? What should we keep in terms of the new habits we developed in COVID time? And what should we jettison during those times? And I'm hopeful that a renewed interest in spiritual disciplines isn't something we give up once time requirements change. I know that we're gonna have to give attention to service to others, and I don't mean just in compassionate ministry ways. we will always need Sunday school teachers. We will always need folks to be, serve as leaders in the local church. But beyond that, our community needs little league coaches and library volunteers and people to serve in food kitchen and people to be after school tutors. All of these types of ministries are places where we as servants of Jesus Christ have opportunities to take the light of Christ into the relationships that are built as we serve the community. That's the meaning of service for us, right? We are ambassadors of Christ. Paul says, it's like Christ is making his gospel appeal through you. And so we have to serve in ways that allow us to live and shine the light of Christ for others. If we don't do that, we won't be fulfilling the mission of Christ. And we have to consider, were we doing that or not? I've used this illustration 472 times, but because it's so perfectly apropos, I'll use it one more time and beg your forgiveness. So if you read Stephen Covey's book, uh, Habits, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I think this is where this is from. He talks about the convention speaker who put a big empty jar on the middle of the table and then started to put large rocks in it. And after it was full of large rocks, he said to the group that was there, you know, is the jar full? And they said yes. And then he reached down and he got small rocks. He filled the cracks between the big rocks with small rocks. He says, is it filled? They say yes. He reaches on the table, he pulls out gravel. He puts gravel in, the gravel filters down. He says, is it full? And they say, you know, probably not. And then he reaches under the table and he pulls out handfuls of sand and he pours sand in the packs to the lid. And he says, is it full? And they say, not likely at this point. Then he reaches down and grabs a pitcher of water, pours the water into the jar. And he says, is it full? And they say, oh, we don't know. And, and then he says to the crowd, what's the lesson of this? And the guy in the back of the room waves his hand and says, you can always get more in. And he says, no. That's not the message. If you don't get the big rocks in first, you never get them in. And I would propose to you, there are some big rocks that we need to get in this jar if we're going to successfully move out of COVID times and rebuild the kind of lives that we want that will glorify God and respond to him in mission. And I think The biggest rock that needs to get back in our jar is corporate prayer. I think that we must give primary attention to prayer. We have to do that. And so this is what I propose moving forward. I'm not going to be in service next Sunday. I will be in quarantine. I'm headed to Pennsylvania to 
help my parents look at a handicapped accessible apartment. And when I get back, I will have to quarantine. So Pastor Light will be preaching the services next Sunday. And then I'll return the following Sunday. When I return the following Sunday, I'm going to begin with what I'm calling a school of prayer. And we're going to spend time talking about prayer. I'm going to be giving homework. It's going to be a school. It's going to be practical application as well as scripture and theology. And we're going to talk about what it means for us to pray together after the instructions of the word and the, the, the modeling of the Lord Jesus in scripture. And we've got to get that back into, into the jar. And I suspect there'll be three or four schools to follow that. The school of prayer will not be accomplished in one week. It will be several weeks long. And in preparation for that, here's what I would ask. I would ask that you begin to urgently pray for the revealing of the Spirit for our lives so that we're able to discern what we must bring forward, what we must correct. But I would ask you to urgently pray for, pray for me as I finish developing this school of prayer. Um, it's a daunting task and and I'll be candid, trying to, trying to develop the messages for a school of prayer when you're not an expert is a difficult task. You know, I've, I've given the analogy before of uh, my piano playing ability, which is marginal at best. I mean, there's a few little things I can do well, and that is about this much of the scope of being a pianist. And that's how I feel when it comes to praying. That's how I feel when it comes to developing a school of prayer. I am absolutely no expert. I can do some things, and I'm relying on the wisdom of others and the testimony of others and the word and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to figure out a way that we become a congregation of prayer. Because that must happen if we're going to see more than just the foundation rebuilt, if we're gonna see more than just the church temple rededicated, if we're actually gonna see the wall of the city rebuilt and the kingdom of God advance in our community and in our time, rather than having to wait 100 years for Ezra and Nehemiah to show up, we've gotta do this. And I believe we can do this because I believe it's the desire of the Spirit for us. So we will need his help, and we will need to pray towards that end together. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we're embarking on a journey. The end of it is not clear to us, but we believe that you are leading us and that your promises are true, and that when you say in Scripture that you're holding your hands out to us all day long, we are running to you now. We are turning to you. We are calling to you, and we're saying, Lord, inspire us by your Spirit. Help us to move forward in those small steps of obedience, which will enable us to reflect your glory in our community, because, Lord, we want to be used by you. We want to see your Spirit come. We want to see not just our lives restored, but the lives that are broken all around us restored, that you might be glorified in our communities. Help us to that end, we pray, Lord Jesus. 
We place ourselves in your hand. We pledge ourselves to obey you as best we're able. Help us, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. And now may the one who began a good work in you bring it to full completion so that you may live as salt and light in this world to the glory of God now and forever. Amen.